0: Good morning again. Oh, come on. You can do better than that. Good morning. Good morning. One more time. Good morning. Good morning. There you go. I really hate it when I'm on that side, but I love it on this side. So forgive me. Um, it's, it's an advantage of having a microphone. You get to make people do things like that. And they do most of the time. Um, only, three times. only three times. Three is really a little bit too much, but there you go. Jana will chew me out later for doing it three times versus two. Uh, I just need to, I want to frame a little bit of what's going on in regards to the, the sermon this morning. We've been working through this series called Stories Old and New, and we've been looking at stories of God's faithfulness as they show up in the, in the Old Testament of the Bible, and we've been talking about stories from this morning of God's faithfulness in today and where we are, in people's everyday lived experience in life. Last week we shared the story of the calling of Abraham and what that means and how that impacted him and where that left with. And we ended up with this this line at the end that they talk about uh, called God's Secret Rescue Plan. We're working along with the Jesus Storybook Bible throughout the summer because our kids are with us in it. It tells the it tells the story in a meaningful and compelling way. The story that we're talking about today uh, is complicated. To put, it, to put it mildly. Some people love this story, other people find it disturbing and it brings up some stuff that can be challenging for some of us. Um, and we're going to unpack that as we go, but we just want to let you know that this is a complicated and tricky story in what it says and what it does not say. So with that being said, I invite Jim as uh, he reads our scripture this morning.
1: Thank you, Josh. I, I would just add that it seems to me that one key thing about this story is that God wanted to make it very clear to Abraham and to all eternity that it's not he who glorifies in the sacrifice of human life. He, it, is, it is Satan that rejoices in that rebellion against, his, against God's creation. God knew that his secret rescue plan could only work if Abraham trusted him completely. God had to make sure that Abraham would do whatever he asked. So a few years later, God asked Abraham to give him a present. Abraham liked giving presents to God. He had he gave God his animals. They were called sacrifices and they were a way to say I love you to God. This time God didn't want a lamb or a goat. God wanted to give wanted Abraham to give him something more, much more. He wanted Abraham to give him his son and his only son. He wanted Ab- the son he loved, Isaac. Put his boy on the altar and kill him as the sacrifice? How could God want him to do such a terrible thing? Abraham didn't understand, but he knew that God was his father who loved him, and so Abraham trusted God. Early the next morning, Abraham and Isaac set off. They climbed the steep, stony trail up the mountain. Isaac carried the wood on his back, His father carried the knife and the coals. Papa, Isaac said, we have everything except we have forgot the lamb for the sacrifice. God will give us the lamb, son, Abraham said. They built an altar and laid the wood on top. Abraham asked his son to climb on top of the wood. Isaac didn't understand. But he knew his father loved him, so he trusted him. He climbed up onto the altar, and Abraham tied his boy to the wood. Isaac didn't struggle or try to run away. He just laid there quietly and didn't make a sound. Everything was ready. Abraham took the knife. Tears were filling his eyes. Pain was filling up his heart. His hand was shaking. He lifted the knife high into the air. Stop, God said. Don't hurt the boy. I want him to live and not die. I know that you love me because you would have given me your only son. Abraham felt his heart leap with joy. He unbound Isaac, and folding him in his arms, Great sobs shook the old man's whole body. Scalding tears filled his eyes. And for a long time they stayed there like that, in each other's arms, the boy and his dad. Suddenly, Abraham saw a ram caught in some brambles, the sacrifice. God had given them what they needed just in time. The ram would die. So Isaac didn't have to. And so Abraham sacrificed the ram instead of his son. And as they sat there on the mountaintop watching the embers of the fire die in the cool night air, God helped Abraham and Isaac to understand something. God wanted his people to live, not die. God wanted to rescue his people, not punish them. But they must trust him. One day, someone will be born into your family, God promised them. And he will bring happiness to the whole world. God was getting ready to give the whole world a wonderful present. It would be God's way to tell the people, I love you. Many years later, another son would climb another hill carrying wood on his back. Like Isaac, he would trust his father and do what his father asked. He wouldn't struggle or run away. Who was he? God's son, his only son, the son he loved, the Lamb of God.
0: Let's pray. Heavenly Father, In the midst of this time, on this morning, we pray that you show up. We pray that you speak to us through words, through conversation, through a song, through a hug or a moment of affirmation throughout this morning. We come together to worship, uh, to be reminded of who you are, and to encounter you. We pray for your presence here. May we not sing to empty rooms, but may your spirit linger amongst us, whether we feel close to you or far from you, whether our sin feels heavy and we feel embarrassed, but you come to us like a parent to a child to embrace us. And God, we pray for that embrace this morning. Speak to us, prompt us, Motivate us and encourage us to where we need to go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is a tricky story. Um, It gets debated. Some people love this story, some some people do not. Um, It gets called a bunch of different things, too, over the different years. So sometimes it's called uh, the sacrifice of Isaac, or the near sacrifice of Isaac, or the binding of Isaac. Uh, it has a long tradition within uh, rabbis and, and Hebrew scholars as well, where it's called the Akedah, which is sa- kind of how it sounds in Hebrew, talking about the binding of what's going on. And it's tricky because it deals with a bunch of stuff that gets complicated in, in what it's trying to say. So, so let's understand a little bit of what's going on to try to make sense of what, what we do with a story like this and how it impacts us. Right, So the first thing that we need to understand is something about Abram and Abraham. And really often when we think of Abraham, we presume because he does all these miracles or all these things happen and we think he's got his life together. And then you come to this moment where he's told to sacrifice his son. Uh, though he's not, we're, we're given a hint in that and it doesn't show up in the story we read. But in the, the scriptures themselves, it says sometime later, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, I want you to give your son. So we're given a clue and a hint from the very beginning that this is a test, this is a trial. But it still prompts the question, why? Why, oh why, if this is Abraham, this is a man that is referred to as the patriarch or one of the patriarchs, a person upon which there is a genealogy and a legacy of faithfulness. Abraham, who when he hears God's call just goes Someone who is faithful, someone who seems just, someone who does what is right. Why, oh why, does he have to get put through this? Why does he go through this kind of test? And in many ways, Abraham's life, when you look at it in the scope, is really nothing but a series of trials, though. Right? It starts in the beginning when he's 75 and an old man and established and comfortable and has all the resources that one could want for back in the day. And God shows up to him and calls him into a new land and calls him into a new place and, and basically says, leave behind everything that you know and have owned and are part of. And Abraham does. And he takes his wife and he takes his people and he takes his stuff that he can, but he leaves some at home and he gets led off out into a place that he does not know. And he ends himself up in Egypt where his wife gets taken from him by Pharaoh. And then his family is split in two and eventually he gets his wife back. And his nephew who had left with him in this process, he goes along with and then he gets drawn into a civil war. And then Abraham has to go and rescue and get him out. And through all of these steps there's moments where Abraham's call feels tested and tried. There's all these moments again and again and again where something happens and Abraham chooses a life of faithfulness and saying, this is what I was called and this is where I'm going to go. And so it goes on and on and on. And in the midst of that, it's also worth pointing out that there's the whole thing about Isaac himself, this baby boy that is promised that has to be a massive trial. If you've ever been in a relationship or a marriage or something that's gone on, there, are, there often emerge sore spots and tender points the things that you can't really fix and solve but at some stage you just come to peace with the fact that this is what it is and i can't fix it we know that abraham wants a kid we know that sarah wants a kid you know this is something that they've wanted forever and over the span of their 75 years at some stage they come to this place of acceptance we're not going to have a son we're not going to have a daughter i really wanted that and that's disappointing but it it is what it is and i'm okay And then God shows up and says that Abraham will be blessed through an heir and a descendant. And it has to reopen all of those old wounds. It has to bring everything back up and change the conversations around the dinner table and the conversations of stuff that was dead and buried and the wound feels like it's torn open again. Abraham's life in many ways is just a series of test after test after test after test. It's also worth pointing out uh, in regards to some of the tensions of the story that child sacrifice was surprisingly common back in the day. The old understanding of uh, of religion was was that there were these gods that existed out in the world and the universe and that they would give you stuff if you gave them stuff. It was almost a commercial interaction. Or if you gave them love and attention, then they would give you what you wanted, right? Because they cared for you to some degree. And so you would have to offer sacrifices and you would have to give things. And this was just a fairly common interaction, you know. And so if you wanted your crops to grow, if you wanted to have children, if you wanted to have a blessing, you had to to give things to God always. And that's just what happened. And that was the broad understanding. So it was not uncommon back in the day for the ultimate ask to be made of a child, And so they would ask religious uh, professionals and righteous people, whatever that was designed to meet, if you wanted to create the biggest offering you could, they would offer up kids. And that's distressing, and it's not what God wants, but it was the context in which Abraham found himself. So Abraham doesn't freak out to some degree when he gets asked to give up his kid, because there's a question of, well, Abraham, do you love me as much as those guys say they love their gods? Even though God isn't asking that. But God is is explaining and trying some things. And it's interesting, if nothing else in this story, another point point for me is how Abraham both holds uh, tension with his fear and anxiety he has for his kid, as well as his trust and hope in God. Because if you think about the story, this is how it plays out. Abraham has a vision one night. If you put himself in your shoes, you go to bed and you have a vision, clear as day, and God speaks to you and say, Take your child, your son, your daughter, the one you love, and take them to a place that I will show you, and I want you to offer them as a sacrifice. So Abraham wakes up early because he's distressed. He gets his kid, his son, he gets two servants, doesn't tell his wife. And they leave early in the morning. They sneak out. They walk for three days. Those conversations have to get more halting and awkward as the day goes on. What are you talking about around lunch or dinner or on camp at the end of the night? What do you say when you look at your kid and you think of what God has told you? And you finally get to the place where God says, Okay, go up this mountain. So, you leave the servants behind and you and your child walk up. And we don't know how old he is, but let's say he's old enough to ask questions and understand. So, let's say like 5 to 12, 5 to 10, and he knows what's going on. And it just gets awkward and challenging. Abraham holds in tension both his fear and anxiety that we experience towards our family and our kids and his hope and trust and faith in God. And he's tested in this moment where there is this very clear tension. So let's take a minute and talk about what it means to be tested and what it means for that to live itself out because it's something that many of us go through. If we're frank and we're honest, with enough laps around the sun, there will come moments and times in your life when you will be tested, when you will be tried. And testing, ultimately, at the end of the day, is when we are feeling led one way, but it doesn't make light or doesn't make sense in light of something else. Being tested is the moment when you feel one thing, but it doesn't make sense of something else, which is exactly what Abraham feels because God has promised to him, the world, the universe will be blessed through your line, through your descendants, through your children and their children and their children. Goodness will come. Something will come. It will be marvelous and mighty. And at the same time, God also has told him, you need to go and offer a sacrifice of your son. Being tested is those moments when we are pulled in two separate directions. It's the times when we encounter two very different things and we almost have the experience of thinking, God, God, why would you give me these conflicting ideas? I have a, a friend of mine who is in a moment of testing right now. He's late 20s. Maybe he's 30. Don't know his exact age. He's been married a handful of years, five, seven years. He and his wife, uh, when they were dating, before they were dating, talked about kids. Good religious guy. He believes in Jesus with all his heart. So does his wife. He works in churches and he works in ministries and he has been ever since he was a kid. He has felt since he was a teenager that he wanted to have a big family and he wanted to have a kid. And he felt that there was this clear sense of call that came from God that he was supposed to have a kids in his family. And he met his wife. He met this girl, and she had the same thing. And they thought, aha, here we go. This is it. And you can probably guess where the story goes. Like many of us, they've struggled to get pregnant. They're two years in of trying. They're two years in and trying to have a baby. And it continues to be hard. And there's been conversations and moments and interactions where we've sat together over over tacos or over lunch and he just weeps and he cries and he says lines like why would god even give me this desire if it's not an option how is this fair how is this right this is just hard There's times when we face attack. There's times when there's an enemy who is after us. There's times also when we, we do things and shoot ourselves in the foot. And then there's times when we are tested and we are pulled in two separate directions. There's an author I like by the name of Lauren Winner. She's written a series of books, Girl Meets God, Mud House Sabbath, a couple of other ones. She has one out recently called Still. Uh, and she's dealing with this this midpoint in her life and some of the tensions that arise out of it. And she is living in what she describes almost as her own moment of testing. And she describes it as a, as a threshing floor. A threshing floor isn't something that we use nowadays. It's used by farmers back in the day. And so when you would cut off grain or wheat, you would normally cut it off at the stock Or somewhere at the bottom. And then you would have to get the grain away from the chaff. right? You would have to get the part that you can use that's meaningful and useful away from the part that wasn't. And so there would be these floors that they would take oxen or sometimes it would be wind powered with a wheel. And they would would grind and pull these two separate things apart. And she describes moments of testing as those times when there are two truths on the threshing floor of faith that get ripped into two. So the grain is separated from the chaff. And that's what Abraham is experiencing in this moment. This moment of feeling that there are two truths, two things he is supposed to do, and rather than find an easy resolution or to deny one or the other, he chooses to embrace that tension. Before I came to fifth, I spent 18 years working, uh, doing youth work. I worked at camps. I was a youth pastor. I worked in a variety of different stages. I worked with middle school kids, high school kids, college students, young adults. And in the midst of that, I watched people discover faith and live into faith. And I watched people wrestle with faith. I watched people wrestle with things that they hold dear, uh, feel like they are getting torn apart, and say, what do I do? Moments of doubt, of insecurity, of feeling like their faith is being deconstructed before their eyes. And I would do the only thing I knew how to do it. I would sit, and I would be present. And I would say, I will always be your friend. You'll always have a place here. Because the threshing floor can feel violent and painful and hurtful. And friends, if you are at one of those stages of faith or of life where you feel like your life is being porn, torn into for any reason, I just want to take a moment and break and, and say that you have friends here. You have a place here. If you're at the stage where up feels like down and down feels like up and you're not sure what to make with anything, come talk to someone, anyone rally your friends, rally the troops, come find me. But know that as moments of doubt, of crisis, of the dark night of the soul come, that you do nothing to get disqualified from this place or to be a child of God. Because testing is inevitable. It's also also funny, right? Or maybe not funny, but it is interesting in the fact that we we view testing as a negative thing because we want it to be easier, right? We want our life to be easy. We want it to be good. We want it to be smooth rolling. And our moments of testing are clear signs that life—testing in life doesn't make it easier, but it does make it good. If we look at—let's take a moment and look at the life of Jesus, for example— Jesus who is God's son, Jesus who if there was an understanding of faith and life in which if you did the right things, life would be easy and smooth rolling, which is, if we're frank, the assumption of most of our culture, right? We assume if we do the right things, then life will be smooth. If I do the right things, I'll get what I want. If I do the right things, then I'll get the grades or the job or the promotion that I want. Christian Smith, who's a sociologist, talks about this and and he came up with the term of moralistic therapeutic deism to describe the dominant religion of American society, which is that if I do good things, I will get good things. Uh, And when I do bad things, God does not like me and I am shamed and shunned. But if we look at the life of people that show up in scripture, we see that's not the case, right? Right? Jesus, who is God's son, who is God incarnate. Jesus' life is far from easy. Jesus gets baptized and is immediately taken out into the desert where he is tempted and tried and struggles. Jesus, who is itinerant, knows little comfort, knows little luxury, little safety or stability. Jesus, who the night before his crucifixion is so anxious and worried about what is to come that he sweats blood based on the stress. Or if we look at the life of Paul Paul who wrote much of the New Testament Paul who went on missionary journeys and started things and yet Paul was also scorned, stoned driven out of towns Paul who was hated and cursed Paul who was shipwrecked Paul who was bitten by poisonous snakes Paul who was tested and tried Testing does not make life easy but it does make it good and what we see is that when we're able to fully engage our faith in what is around us, we come out stronger on the other side. Now I say that, and sometimes we use that as a, as a trivial poo-poo kind of moment in the midst of someone's suffering or pain or hurt or, or doubt. And that's not what I mean. But when we can hold truth's in tension, we find life on the threshing floor of faith. I think this also shows us some things uh, that are clear about our culture, in my opinion, when we look at the story of Abraham and what it means. And I think for many of us, if we're, if, if we're honest about the culture in which we were raised, we grew up in one in which the gospel is fundamentally too weak and where belief is designed to be easy and convenient. We come to church because it makes us feel good, We pay with butts and bucks, and we walk out with almost a dry-cleaning mentality towards spirituality. I don't think we, we choose this. I don't think anyone set out to design this. But this is the world in which a lot of our churches today live. But it stands in contrast to the call of God. It stands in contrast to the words of Jesus who says things like this in Matthew 16. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up the cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life will find it. Or he says in Matthew 5, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. There's an understanding within Christianity. There's an understanding with the true expression of the gospel that calls us to something more than convenience. That stands against... Oh, who was it? Who was it that called religion uh, the opiate for the masses? The gospel itself stands against Marx's declaration that faith is the opiate for the masses because it calls us to true sacrifice. It calls us to postures that say... What I have, the things most valuable to me, can be offered before God. In the book of James, it has words like, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in nothing. Friends, God is either first in the world, in the universe, in our lives, or he is nothing. If God is an opiate for the masses, then I am the God of my universe because I'm the one who decides what is and is not acceptable. I'm the one who decides what is and is not out. And at the same time, the call of God is to one greater and bigger and more expansive than us. I actually love the the line from The line the Witch, in the Wardrobe uh, where they're, they're talking about Aslan and it's all uh, an allegory about, about Christ and the gospel and what's going on within the story. And at some stage, the, the human children who are going over, and the youngest one, whose name is Lucy, uh, is talking to some beavers, because it's an allegory, uh, and is talking with, to some beavers and says uh, about Aslan, who is the Christ-like figure, right? Aslan, who is Jesus. Um, and she wants to know what's going on with that. And she asks, is Aslan safe? Is he controllable? Is he tame? And Mrs. Beaver says, well, and it goes, safe, said Mr. Beaver. Did you not hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Right? Times of testing and trial are the times in which God speaks into our world and holds two realities and truths in tension and calls us forward in ways that is not convenient that we do not choose for ourselves that reveal things about ourselves and make us better. Friends, God doesn't call most of us or any of us to sacrifice the thing that is most dear to us. But our response to that question is a great gut check for where our intentions and realities lie. And that's what happens in this. It is not the fact that Abraham was going to offer his son, but it, the fact that Abraham said, all right, God, you, everything, everything of mine is yours. I give it all freely. I release it all. 85%—this uh, is according to a Barna study— 85% of, of people in the U.S. Know, know a Christian, know someone who believes and self-identifies and would say, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian. They, they did surveys and found this out, right? 85%. They said, okay— of those, of those people that you know, how many of them act different at all? And the answer was 15% of that 85 Too often we capitulate to our culture. Too often sacrifice is hard. And I'm not saying we need to go out and be radically different, but I am saying we need to be at a stage where we can take what is before us and hold it loosely with open hands. And lay it before our Father. And maybe that's pride, but the status of our children, maybe it's a career, and that our moments of testing and trial are the moments where things are revealed and God calls us into new territory. I want to end uh, with two quick reminders. I'm, I'm 38. For some of you, that is old. For some of you, that is not. In the 38 years, it becomes abundantly clear to me that times of testing and trial are part of our experience here on Life of Faith. And when that moment of testing and trial comes, no, more than anything, when doubts come, when hurt arises, When the dark night of the soul emerges and you cry out, why, oh, why, God? Know that you are not alone, that there is a Father in heaven who loves and cares for you, and you will always have a place here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you are a father. That you are not like the gods of old who demand sacrifice in order for us to get something. That you are not a transactional God who only comes after us when we are good or shames us when we are bad. God, we give you thanks that you are a God who loves us like a parent loves a child who embraces us and runs after us and whose every impulse is to move towards us. And God, even when the moments of trial, of temptation, of hurt come, that you do not leave us, that you do not forsake us, but you stand by us. God, we pray for our brothers and sisters in this place and in our community that are in that place now that feel as if things have gone awry, that feel as if part of them is being torn asunder, and we pray that you are present with them. We pray for families that are hurt. We pray for relationships that are damaged. And we pray that you show up in the midst of those times. God, may we be people who continue to cling to you in the midst of time, testing, and trial.